Chapter Fifteen of The Directory of the Devout Life by F. B. Meyer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Fifteen, The Disciples' Use of Money, Matthew Chapter Six, Verses Nineteen to Twenty-Four. There are two things which distort our eyesight, i.e., which hinder the pure intention of the soul. The one is the temptation of the prosperous and well-to-do, the other of the poor, reminding us of the seed that was sown among the thorns. This is he that heareth the word, and the cares of this world, this is the temptation of the poor and struggling, and the deceitfulness of riches, this is the temptation of those who are endeavoring or beginning to obtain property, choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. It is of the temptations which accrue in dealing with money that we have now to speak. Our message is to those who, to use the words of the Apostle, desire to be rich. These are they who fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 9 Our Lord, first, alludes to the ephemeral and destructible character of earthly riches. Oriental wealth consisted largely of magnificently embroidered dresses, and in a land where there were no banks, in our sense of the term, coin would be buried in the earth, often, as in the case of Achan, in a hole dug within the precincts of the house. We are reminded also of the parable of our Lord about the hidden treasure in the field, the owner of which had no idea of the buried wealth that lay beneath the surface of the soil, until the ploughshare came into collision with it, and the metallic ring indicated that he should stay his oxen in order to disentomb the jar of coins, hidden when invasion swept the country, and which the proprietor never returned to claim. Our Lord reminds his hearers that moth or rust will destroy all earthly treasures, and that thieves may at any moment break through the slight clay walls of their homes and carry off their hoarded stores. And surely his words are capable of an extended reference to that crowned and sceptred thief, who shall one day dig through the clay walls of our mortal house, and take from us the raiment in which we have been attired, the wealth we may have amassed, the shares that stand in our name, the lands that we have purchased at such cost, sending us forth naked and despoiled, stripped of everything, into a world where we shall land as paupers, because we shall have failed to lay up treasure there. Our Lord could not for a moment have meant to denounce every kind of saving. For instance, the Apostle Paul enjoins on parents the duty of laying up for their children, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 14. It is surely right for us to take advantage of the great laws of life insurance that we may make a reasonable and moderate provision against old age, and especially that we should, by a small annual payment, secure for those who may survive us an adequate competence. I seriously think that every young man and woman should, in the early years of their life, commence to pay into one of our large insurance offices, so that at the age of fifty-five or sixty, a sum may be forthcoming which will be of use to them in their declining years, the same sum being paid to mother, wife, or sister, in case of their premature death. And I cannot for a moment believe that the spirit or letter of our Lord's words contradict this item of Christian economics. 
It seems also certain that there is nothing in these words of the master to prohibit the setting apart of a certain sum as capital, which may be used for the development of business, and therefore in the employment of a larger number of operatives. Nothing seems to me more beneficent than that a manufacturer should add to his capital, and therefore to his machinery and yearly output, for all this means the widening of his influence, and the provision of work to larger numbers of men, women, girls, and lads, the more especially if he contributes to the building up of some garden city, free from the facilities of drink, free from the confinement of the great town, free from the vices which are incident to every great aggregation of humanity, where every home is within sight of trees and flowers, where every working man has his plot of land, and where the children breathe fresh, health-giving air. But neither of these methods of laying aside money is contrary to our Lord's injunction. Treasure not treasures upon the earth. What he forbids is the amassing of money, not for the use we may make of it, nor for the securing of our loved ones from anxiety, but for its own sake, to such an extent as that the endeavor to hoard engrosses affections which ought to have been fixed on nobler and diviner things, and leads to the concentration of the whole being upon the growing balance in the bank, or the increase of real estate. In the judgment of eternity it is altogether unworthy of an immortal being to imperil his highest interests, his vision of God, his spiritual power, his peace and blessedness, for things which are so lightly held and easily lost as riches. Granted that the things for which men strive are no longer to be destroyed by moth and rust, or stolen by the night thief, yet the uncertainty of riches is proverbial. At any moment they may take to themselves wings and fly away. A panic on the stock exchange, depreciation in the value of securities, some new invention, the diversion of trade from one port to another, or the competition of the foreigner, may in a very brief space cause the carefully hoarded winnings of our lifetime to crumble and subside like the Venice Campanile. Our Lord might, with very good reason, have denounced the practice of laying up treasure because of the temptation which the desire to gain it involves. When a young man enters his life with the one intention of making a fortune as quickly as he can, he is almost sure to begin making it according to the maxims and practices which prevail in the world around him. From afar he sees the goal that beckons, and he is tempted to take the shortest cut to reach it, along a road strewn thick with lies and roguery, with lost reputations and blasted characters. That road is taken by myriads in the mad rush to become rich, irrespective of the misery which may be involved to others, and the injury which is being wrought for themselves. Well may our Lord describe riches as the unrighteous mammon. Luke chapter 16 verse 11. Therefore, with the utmost urgency, one would reiterate to all who are commencing life, in the words with which the great apostle to the Gentiles closed one of the last epistles, charge them that are rich in this present world, that they be not high-minded, nor have their hope set on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who giveth us richly all things to enjoy. Let us turn now to the reasons which our Lord adduces to his urgent prohibition against the amassing of treasure by his disciples. First, the hoarding of money induces an inordinate love for it. Where thy treasure is, 
there will thy heart be also. There is a strong temptation to the most devout man who begins his life consecrated to God and to the best service of his fellows, when he sees money beginning to accumulate in his possession, to be attracted from the main object of life to its rising pile. Let young businessmen who bear the name of Christ test themselves and ask whether their hearts are not being insensibly stolen away. They may not be aware of what is happening. Gray hairs are becoming plentifully strewn upon their heads without their knowing it. The fascination of money is one of the strongest in the whole world. It is almost impossible to handle it, whether it has come down as an inheritance from the past, or has been gained by successful trading in the present, without coming to like it for its own sake, to congratulate one's self when it increases, and to scheme for its further accumulation. Thus the heart becomes unconsciously bound by ever-tightening chains, as the balloon filled with the light gas, and meant to hold commerce with the clouds, is held down to the earth by strong hawsers from which it cannot get free. It is not difficult for onlookers to discern the process by which the heart is being weaned away from the unseen and the eternal, to the temporal and the transient. There is a slackening of interest in religious worship and Christian service, an absorption amid the home circle which shows that the heart is no longer there, a reluctance to part with money that used once to be freely given for home and foreign missions. It becomes increasingly difficult to engage the attention in anything which involves the diversion of time or thought from the bank, the factory, or the store. The process is very subtle, but on the comparison of years, those who love the tempted and fascinated nature shake their heads gravely as they realize that the heart is being betrayed to its ruin, and that another life will soon be cast beneath the wheels of the terrible juggernaut car of worldly ambition and success. There are five tests by which we may become aware whether this parasite is wrapping itself around us. Let us dare to question our hearts, and ask God to search them by His Holy Spirit. These five will suffice. 1. Do we find our mind going towards the little store of money which we have made, with a considerable amount of complacency, casting up again and again its amount, and calculating how much more may be added in the course of another year? When we are sleepless at night, or sit back in the corner of our railway carriage, do we find ourselves habitually going in the one direction of that growing competence? If so, is it not clear that our heart is being fascinated and attracted? 2. Does the thought constantly intrude in our mind that there is now less likelihood than ever of our spending the end of our days in a respectable workhouse, or being dependent upon others, even upon God himself? Do we look back upon the days of early manhood and compare them with the present, feeling that we are becoming independent? Is our trust in God less complete than it used to be? Is there not danger, therefore, of our weak and deceitful heart trusting in these uncertain riches and being robbed of that simple faith which used to be the charm of earlier days when we were content to do His work and trust Him for all that was necessary? 3. Do we envy other men who are making money more rapidly than we are, and count ourselves ill-used if we cannot keep pace with them? 4. Do we look at every service we perform, at our extending knowledge of men, at every new piece of information that we gather, in the light of their monetary advantage? 5. 
is it our habit to measure the gains of the year simply by what we have made, and with no reference to what we are, to the money we have accumulated, rather than the good we have done? It becomes us to ask ourselves such questions as these reverently, as in the sight of God, and thoughtfully for our highest interests, for they will reveal to us almost certainly whether the slow poison of an absorbing love of money may not be stealing through our heart, robbing it of its noblest attributes. It is a terrible thing for us to love gold for its own sake, rather than for the use that we may make of it, because the heart is liable to become like that which it loves. Not only is the heart buried in the place where the treasure is, but inevitably it becomes like its treasure. Ossification is a terrible physical disease when the heart turns to a hard, bony substance, but it has a spiritual counterpart for those beneath whose love for gold the heart shrivels into something little better than metal. It is not necessary for us to dwell at length on the second reason which our Lord adduces against treasuring our treasures, viz., that hoarding money diverts the pure intention of the soul and blinds all spiritual light. We all know that faith is only possible for the pure heart. The faculty of spiritual vision and receptivity depends upon the simplicity and integrity of our moral life. When, therefore, the heart is filled with thoughts of its earthly riches, it becomes gross and insensible to the spiritual and eternal realm. Things of God fade from the vision, the love of God declines from the heart, the soul is no longer single in its purpose, the eye becomes dim, the spiritual force abated, moral paralysis sets in, and the whole body becomes full of darkness, under the cover of which evil things creep forth. No, do not let your spiritual eyes become dazzled by the glitter of this world's goods, lest you be unable, like Bunyan's man with the muckrake, to see the angel who, with golden crown in hand, waits to bless you. Instead of crouching over the heap of transient treasure, rise to your full stature, and claim the crown that fadeth not away. The third reason that our Lord adduces is that hoarding money finally enslaves. He says that no man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other, you cannot serve God and mammon. He employs two significant words, the one, mammon, an old Chaldaic word for the god of wealth, the other, to serve, the subjective of the slave to the caprice of an owner. Our Lord puts in juxtaposition the two masters, God the beneficent father and mammon the god of wealth, and says everyone must choose between them. Whichever you elect to serve will become the supreme dominating force of your life, giving you no option save the obedience of a slave. Notice, then, the peril of the Christian man who is falling under sway of covetousness, which the Apostle calls idolatry. Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5. At the end of the process, be it longer or shorter, he will renounce entirely the service of God, and become the slave of money-making. The slightest acquaintance with commercial circles will give evidence of the tyranny of mammon, which compels its abject slaves to toil day and night, demands the sacrifice of love and health, of home enjoyments and natural pleasures, insists that every interest shall be subordinate to its all-consuming service, and at the end of life casts its votary, 
bankrupt and penniless, upon the shores of eternity. Drink itself, stripping men of everything worth living for, is not more to be dreaded. What, then, is the alternative to this prohibited hoarding of money? Are we to give away promiscuously and to everyone that asks? I confess that I have no faith in this indiscriminate giving, which demoralizes him who gives and him who receives, which creates a plentiful harvest of loafers and ne'er-do-wells to the detriment of the thrifty and industrious poor, and which satisfies the sentiment of pity by a lazy dole when it ought to set itself to a radical amelioration of the suppliant beggar. It is comparatively fruitless to give a meal here and there, without endeavouring, by practical sympathy and helping hand, to assist families by putting them in the way of helping themselves. This is what is needed. And to put individuals or households in the way of standing on their own feet and securing their own livelihood is immensely more important than to furnish temporary relief that supplies the need of today, but makes no permanent alteration in the circumstances of tomorrow or of the future. It is much more difficult to use our money thoughtfully and thriftfully to help others than to place a half-crown or a sovereign in their hands. Here, for instance, is a poor woman whose case appeals to your sympathy. It is, of course, quite easy to give her a few shillings and to dismiss her from your mind. But the noblest thing would be to secure her a sewing machine or a mangle, thus furnishing her with the opportunity of self-help. It is quite as important not to give money indiscriminately as it is not to hoard. The ideal method of life is to use what you have to help others, to regard your possession of money as a stewardship for the welfare of the world, and to consider yourself a trustee for all who need. Instead of letting your dresses hang in the wardrobe, give them to the respectable poor, whose own are threadbare, that they may be able to occupy suitably the positions on which their livelihood depends. This is the best way of keeping them free from moth. Whatever you have in the way of books, recreation, spare rooms, elegantly furnished homes, look upon them all as so many opportunities of helping and blessing others. If you are in business, at the end of the year put aside what is needed for the maintenance of your family in the position to which God has called them. Next, put aside what may be required for the development of your business. Third, be sure that by a system of life insurance you are providing for the failure of old age. But when all this is done, look upon the remainder as God's, to be used for Him. Never give God less than a tenth, but give Him as much more as possible. If you have money by inheritance, you have no right to give that away or squander it, but pass it down as you received it, always considering, if you will, that the interest is God's, awaiting your administration as his steward and trustee. Let every Christian adopt the principle of giving a certain proportion of their income to the cause of Christ, and whenever the fascination of money begins to assert itself, instantly make a handsome donation to some needy cause. Every time the temptation comes to look at money from a selfish standpoint, meet it by looking up to God and saying, I thank thee that thou hast given me these things richly to enjoy, and desire wisdom and grace to use them for thee and thine. What will be the result of a spiritual attitude like this? Ah, the full blessedness cannot be put into words, but this you will find. You will have treasure in heaven. For what you invest in ministering to others is capital laid up in God's bank, the interest of which will always be accruing to you. 
I have a very distinct belief that actual interest comes from money which is being invested in doing good, and at last those we have helped will welcome us into the eternal mansions. Luke chapter 16 verse 9. Moreover, your heart will be increasingly fixed where your treasure is, in the unseen and the eternal. Your eye will be single, your life harmonious, your hold upon earthly things slender, your love for your master, Christ, becoming a passion. Ultimately, you will find that the yearning which you used to have for selfish satisfaction and comfort will pass away, as the blessing of him that was ready to perish falls upon your head, and the thanks of the widow and the orphan anticipate the well done of your Lord. End of chapter 15